Well, a few months ago, Lisa and I were driving uh, south out of Cedarburg. I forget where we were going, but we are headed for I-43. So when we do that, we go down Green Bay Road to where it hits Highway C, Pioneer there. And right there at that intersection where Green Bay hits Pioneer Road, we saw something that really surprised us. There was a family standing off on the side of the road, on the grass there, a uh, man, his wife, and I think two or three uh, young kids, and they were standing there holding a sign asking for money, asking for donations. Now, that's a pretty common sight if you're down in Milwaukee, but it's pretty unusual up here in the Cedarburg area to see something like that. So we were there at the stop sign, you know, and we were, we were kind of shocked to see it. Um, you know, they, were, they, they looked, you know, like a nice family. They were well-dressed, clean. Uh, they looked like they might have been from uh, um, maybe a South Asian background, Indian or Pakistani or something. So, but, but, you know, we were there at the stop sign. We saw them. They saw us. And so right away we're thinking, what do we do? You know, all these thoughts start going through my head. And, and these things happen so fast, they're almost like unconscious. But these thoughts, these questions like, are they really in need, right? Or is this some kind of a scam? Um, why are they there? And, and are they new to the country? Or have they been here a while? Are they just out of work? Uh, why, where do they live? Why are they up here? What, and why are they at this particular corner, which is kind of in the middle of nowhere? Um, why are they there? So all those thoughts are going through my head, and I'm wondering, what's the right thing to do? I'll come back to that. So past few weeks, we've been talking about how we are wired to connect. You know, we, we are made in the image of God, and a, and a big part of what that means is we are made for relationship. We're made for community because God himself is a community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living together in this relationship of, of infinite love. And so for us to be like Jesus, for us to be like God, means growing in our relationships and our connections with each other. We can only really be like God to the degree we are in relationship. Well, one of the very practical ways we live that out is by being generous with our money. And I think we all know that, at least in theory, that you know, we know that that's a good thing. We know that <clears throat> we're called to be a generous community. So why is that often such a confusing and challenging topic. And that's what I want to talk about today. Um, so, and I noticed, you know, anytime you bring up money in church, you know, remember the old Star Wars, or I think it was Star Trek. Star Trek, they'd go into battle and the shields would go up, shields up. It's like, you start talking about money, shields go up, right? Yeah. So if your shields are up, just try and bring them down. It'll be okay. <laughs> Let God speak to us today. So let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for uh, today. Thank you for the life you have for us, the love you have for us. Thank you for what you're drawing us into. Help us to become more like you in every way. And I pray that you'd speak to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is, uh, I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and the first seven verses. This is Paul speaking, writing. <clears throat> He says this, We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, 
their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify to that, uh, that according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints and not just as we had hoped. Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. So we urge Titus that just as he had begun, so he should also complete among you this act of grace. Now as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. <clears throat> so sometime around the mid-40s in the first century, uh, a, a severe famine struck the Middle East. Now that was not unusual in that part of the world. It, uh, you drought could wreak havoc with the, the crops that they grew. Uh, then you combine that with the heavy taxation that the Roman government had on the people there, sometimes civil unrest in different parts of the empire, all under this tyrannical government. And, and then you had all this resultant economic instability in what were often very densely populated areas. So all of that put together led at times to these horrific famines where thousands of people would starve to death. So about 15 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem, the church there, they were suffering through just such a famine. You know, biblical scholars who look at those times and study those times tell us that the situation may actually have been aggravated by some decisions that church made in the early years. If you remember from Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, when, the, when that church first formed after Pentecost in Jerusalem, it tells us that the believers like sold their homes and they sold their lands and they donated all the money to the church. And, and uh, that may have been a really good move and what God was doing there at the beginning uh, of the church there because you had this huge influx of, of disciples at that time and they needed to fund that. They needed to find a way to care for each other. But it may not have been a good long-term strategy because 15 years later, they were in desperate economic trouble um, as this famine hit. Scholars also say that it was common back then, like today, for elderly Jews around the Mediterranean to move to the holy city as they got older, like when they retired and, and to live there. So you had this steady influx, influx of older people and, and sometimes widows uh, moving to Jerusalem, uh, probably many of them becoming disciples, and often they needed financial help because there was no social security back then. Plus, you know, the church was paying, no doubt, support for some of the apostles and, and the leaders who were doing the work of ministry. And now on top of that, you had uh, this famine and they were trying to feed the hungry as well. All to say, <clears throat> there were a lot of factors that came together and contributed to this desperate financial need of the church in Jerusalem in the mid-40s. Some of those factors were totally out of their control. There was nothing they could have done. But some may have been the results of decisions they had made along the way. 
Well, when Paul heard about their need, he devoted himself to going to the churches he had started, the ones he'd planted around the Mediterranean, and asking them to give, to, to help out this church in Jerusalem. But there was another complicating factor uh, to this whole issue, too. The Jerusalem church was made up primarily of Jewish believers. Uh, the churches Paul had started were made up primarily of Gentile believers, non-Jewish people. And the Jews and the Gentiles had not always exactly gotten along. Uh, plus, in the early years of, of uh, Paul's work of planting churches, some of those Jewish believers from Jerusalem had gone to some of the Gentile churches in other cities and told them that if they didn't follow the Jewish customs and laws, they weren't really Christians. That did not go over well. And, uh, um, and uh, so there may have still been some hard feelings on the part of some of those Gentile believers, like feeling like they were looked down upon by the church in Jerusalem as second-class Christians. And now Paul wanted them to give money to that church. So what's the right thing to do? Well, in his book, The Good and Beautiful Community, uh, James Bryan Smith says there are three false narratives that often impact our willingness to be generous. You know, three ideas, you could say, or three stories that we might believe that shape how we think about giving. And the first comes from a line we've all heard. It says, God helps those who what? God helps those who help themselves. A lot of people think that's in the Bible. It is not. Uh, ben Franklin penned those words in 1757 for Paul, Poor Richard's Almanac. And Ben Franklin is a guy who said a lot of brilliant things. This, however, was not one of them. Um, this is a narrative of judgment. It's saying that God will help you only if you get your act together. Right? Only if you take responsibility for your life, only if you put in the hard work that's required, if you do those things, then God will help you. And it's saying God is not going to help those who don't work hard, those who are in any way irresponsible. And if God's not going to do it, well, then I guess I don't have to do it either, right? That would be the thinking with it. See, this is the narrative we might, probably unconsciously, but we might be wrestling with at some level. When we see someone asking for money, like Lisa and I did that day when we were driving out of Cedarburg, we're asking ourselves, do they deserve it? Do they deserve it? And this was maybe the question the Gentile believers uh, were asking about the Christians in Jerusalem, too. You know, was this crisis really the result of their own bad financial decisions? So if I give them money, am I just throwing good money after bad? Is it just going to go to, is it not going to help really? Um, plus, they haven't always treated me well, so why should I help them? The flip side of this false narrative of judgment tells me that if, that if I am doing well, if we are doing well, well, we believe it's because we deserve it. Uh, we've done the right thing, so God has blessed us. Or maybe God's not even involved in our mind. We just think, I've earned whatever I have, so why should I give it to someone who hasn't earned it? You know, they should be responsible for themselves. 
And with this narrative of judgment, we place ourselves above others, which is always a very dangerous place to be. The second false narrative sounds, at least to me, just like common sense, but it's a false narrative. It tells us, if I give it away, I won't have enough, or at least I might not have enough, right? If I give it away, I won't have enough. This is a narrative of scarcity, and it's one of the dominant narratives in our culture today. Uh, It tells us we have to be careful because there is a limited supply. You know, I have to try and get as much as I can for myself and hang on to it because if I don't, I might not have enough down the road. And to some degree, you and I all live with this narrative. It is in the air we breathe. It's, it's taught everywhere, basically, uh, not on purpose, but subconsciously, sometimes on purpose. It's taught uh, just in everything that we hear, so we can't escape it on our own. That day at the corner in Cedarburg, part of what's going through my mind was, yeah, how much cash do I have on me? And what, do, what might I need it for? You know, what am I not going to be able to do if I give this money away? Can I afford to be generous? And those Gentile churches had to be wrestling with that question as well because they were also facing difficult times. Uh, You know, this was not the best time for them to be giving away money. Paul says they gave during a time of severe trial and out of their extreme poverty. So was that wise? The third false narrative that we have that we tend to believe sometimes is what I have is mine to use for my own pleasure. What I have is mine to use for my own pleasure. And this you might call a narrative of independence. It flows, I think, out of those first two false narratives. It's a natural result of those. It tells me what I have belongs to me. I own it. I can use it however I want. And using it however I want is what will make my life good. It's what will make me happiest. Now, we start believing this false narrative really early in life. Have you ever had a two-year-old? Two-year-olds live by this narrative, I I am convinced. I now have a two-year-old granddaughter and a four-year-old grandson, and it's fun to watch them again on this. You know, have you ever tried to get a two-year-old or a three-year-old or a four-year-old to share their toys, right? I think the first word they learn is no, and the second word they learn is mine, right? It's mine. It's amazing how they can do that. Now, as parents or grandparents, we can look into those situations and we can see that is not a good way to live, right? That does not enhance your relationships. And yet, this lie is so enticing, it's so subversive that we still think, well, I can live that way and it'll be okay for me. Wow. Somebody's shrieking in the other room if you can't hear that online. So, okay. Well, these false narratives, another word for false narrative is just a, a lie, right? It's a lie. They work together to keep us from generosity. And this, I think this is such a subtle, devious strategy of Satan, who is, after all, the father of lies, the father of false narratives, you could say. Remember, 
we are wired to connect. Uh, that's what we've been talking about. We're made for relationship. And we only become fully human in relationship and to the degree that we live in relationship. So generosity in the end, I am convinced, really is not just about the money. It's about the connection. It's about the relationship. There is always some kind, some degree of connection formed with those to whom we are generous. And so we become a little bit more fully human, a, a little bit more like Jesus every time we practice generosity. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our hearts are joined with those to whom we are generous. And we are generous toward those with whom our hearts are joined. It works both ways. It's a powerful way we become more human. I think it's been interesting over the years. I've had numerous people just tell me, comment on how much more connected they felt in the church once they started being generous to the church, right? It helped them feel connected. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, what Satan wants to do is keep you from connection. He wants to keep you isolated. He wants to keep you from becoming more and more fully human like Jesus. So these false narratives, these lies, take root in our lives and they control us. But Jesus wants to set you free. He wants to set you free. He wants his truth to take root in you. Uh, he wants his truth to shape your life instead. So instead of the lie that says God helps those who help themselves, Jesus shows us that God is indiscriminately generous. And I love that. That's the first song we sang today, right? He pours out his love on everybody. And that's what Jesus demonstrated the whole time he was here. He just poured himself out for everybody, the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? He was with everybody. <clears throat> the Bible tells us that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He is indiscriminately generous. His face is always toward us, meaning his goodness and his blessing and his love and his mercy is always being poured out on everyone. Really, the only question is, will we turn toward him and receive it? And the reality is, it's often the one who cannot help themselves who is the most open to receiving from God. You know, when we realize that we are utterly dependent on God, and we all are, when we realize we are utterly dependent on him for our very lives, that is when we open ourselves to his generosity. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we may have worked hard for what we have, uh, for what we have earned, but the air we breathe, the water we drink, uh, the body, the talents, the, the mind that we have, those things that enable us to work hard, those are all gifts from God. God doesn't wait for us to be generous either. It's not like we have to be generous first and then he's generous toward us if we do that. He is always generous toward us. And I think as we open our eyes to that, as we become more aware of the ways he is generous toward us and we receive that generosity and we turn and worship our generous God, that transforms us and we become generous like him. That's what was going on, I think, in those Gentile churches in the first century. 
You know, these were people that, as Paul writes somewhere, they had been excluded from the family of God. They were without hope, without a future, and yet God had poured his grace on them and brought them into the family of God. They knew God was incredibly generous, and they'd been transformed, and so they were eager to be generous to that church in Jerusalem. Instead of the lie that tells me if I give it away, I won't have enough, Jesus tells me I will always have enough to be generous. I will always have enough to be generous. I love what Paul wrote in uh, 2 Corinthians 9.8. It's just the next chapter, and he's still in the context. It's still all in the context of giving money to help out the church in Jerusalem. It says, God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you can always buy everything you want for yourself. No, that's not what it says, right? Now, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. In other words, you will always have enough to be generous. Remember I said that in the end, generosity isn't just about the money. It's about relationship. And it's first and foremost about our relationship with God. Yeah, he is constantly inviting us to learn just how good he is, how loving he is, uh, to trust him. He's inviting us to see that he's good, to see that he's for us, to see that he'll take care of us, to see that he'll provide for all that we need so that we don't have to live in the grip of that lie that tells me uh, I'm not going to have enough. Live in the grip of the lie that makes me afraid of not having enough. Generosity is about trusting in the goodness of God, and it draws us deeper and deeper into our relationship with him. It teaches us that we can trust him when we depend on him. I personally believe that practicing generosity with our money connects our hearts to God in a way that nothing else can, and that is what God is after, right? It's that connection. That's what he wants. So I think, again, those Gentile believers must have grasped this. Paul says they begged him earnestly for the privilege of giving to the church in Jerusalem. So, Lord, make our hearts like that. Amen? Make our hearts like that. We'll always have enough to be generous. Then last, instead of the lie that tells me that what I have is mine to spend it on my pleasure, Jesus says we are stewards of, of God's gifts, and everything belongs to him. Now, I think we've all heard that. We all know that. But what if we actually lived like that? What would that be like? You know, what if every day we remind ourselves that everything I have is God's, and so we thank him for it. We we just pour ourselves out in gratefulness to him every day. And then we pray, show me how you want me to use what you've given me today. Show me how you want me to use it all. You know what I think would happen if we did that, if that was our daily practice? I think life would be a lot more fun. I really do. I I think we'd have a lot less stress, a lot less fear, because we'd be living like this instead of living like this, right? I just think we'd discover how much God loves us. We're his kids. We have a really, really good father, He wants to set you free from all of the ways that money has a grip on your life, whether you have a little or a lot. 
He wants to bring you into a life. He wants to bring you into his life that is way better than anything you would come up with by clinging to your money and depending on it for your happiness. He wants to bring you into a life that's rich in relationship with him and with others. That's what flows from being generous. Now, we're all growing in this, right? We're all somewhere along the spectrum on this uh, in our journey with God. Um, I'm certainly not totally there yet, but I do know after about, you know, 45, 46, however many years it's been of practice on this, I know that being generous has made my life better. Being generous is good. Well, I don't usually carry much cash on me. I almost never do, as a matter of fact. But that Dave that we stopped at that stop sign driving out of Cedarburg, I actually had a bunch of cash on me. So uh, I grabbed a couple of 20s. I hopped out of the car. You know, we're sitting at this stop sign. So I hopped out of the car, uh, ran over to the family, gave the money to the dad, I think it was, and uh, he thanked me profusely. I hopped back in, and we drove away, and that was it. Um, But in retrospect, I wish I would have taken at least a minute or two to talk to them, ask them a question, find out what their story was. And next time I hope to do that, to remind myself to do that, even if I'm at a stop sign, uh, because it's not just about the money. It really is about the connection. It's about the relationship. Amen? Yeah. So here is my Uh, practice for you this week. This is how we could grow in this, I think. Generosity begins by recognizing how generous God is to us. So what if we all took some time this week and uh, spend some time thinking, reflecting, and make a list, come up with a list of at least three ways that God is generous to you personally? You know, how has he been generous to you? How is he being generous to you right now? And, and try and be specific and try and not, I mean, yeah, we all know the air and the water, right? Yeah, whatever. Go do something a little more specific than that. Of how is he being generous to you? Because um, um, I think that'll open us up to being transformed by that generosity. And then look for at least one way this week to enjoy practicing generosity with your money. Give it a try. So, can I pray? Why don't you all stand? <clears throat> Lord, we do thank you that you are such a good and generous Father. And we uh, um, open ourselves to that, to receiving all that you have for us. And I pray that this week in particular, you would open our eyes to your generosity. Let us see the ways you are generous towards us, I pray, maybe at at a deeper level than we ever have before. And as we open our eyes to it, may that transform our hearts.